Morning, Bethel. All right, well, we get to, we get to uh, read some more scripture here. Um, so Revelation 18 is really helpful to see side by side with our text in Isaiah as we've been studying through the book of Isaiah um, because the stuff that we just read in Revelation 18 actually finds its, its roots down in Isaiah 46 and 47. So, <clears throat> yes, we're going to actually read both of those chapters um, before we dive in. And you know what? If you think, what in the world is going on? What better preparation to actually walk through it together than questions and wonderment? So it's a good thing to get kind of thrown off and go, what is going on? Because oftentimes that can be a little prod and a push to actually engage with God's Word so that you can understand, so that you can then apply what it says um, to your life. So Isaiah 46 and 47, you can find um, the text on page 607 in the Pew Bible. Um, and once again, in honor of God's Word, would you mind um, just joining me and standing? And you can follow along as I read. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are beasts, are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god, then they fall down and worship they lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Take the, um, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers, your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. 
I will take vengeance, and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at its stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you, behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so Israelites were in Babylon in exile. Just where in the world is this located in history if you haven't been with us? Um, God's people, the Israelites, they had been rebellious. They ended up in exile under the thumb of the Babylonians. God is telling them through Isaiah way in advance that Cyrus, the future king of Persia, is going to conquer Babylon and return them home to Jerusalem. Okay? So their degree of physical, political freedom is going to improve greatly in the future because they're not going to be under the thumb of Babylon anymore. They're going to be back in Jerusalem in their own kind of hometown, as it were. But what they need to know, what they really need to know, is that their physical captivity is not their deepest problem. That's what Isaiah has been saying over and over again. Their heart-level rebellion against the Lord is their deepest problem. They need to realize that having any other gods before God never works out, never ends well. Their deepest need is to be freed from captivity to sin and idolatry. Okay, So chapter 46 here shows us the idols of Babylon, okay, and how worthless they are. And then in chapter 47, God shows us the destruction of Babylon. What happens when you bow down to these gods that can't save you, okay? So he does this to show his people, listen, this is so foolish and dangerous to bow down to idols. So 
In one sense, the whole of chapter 46 is like an elaboration of the end of 45. Just flip back to the end of chapter 45 and look at verse 20, the latter half of verse 20, where Isaiah writes, They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. In a sense, chapter 46 is an elaboration of just that that sentence. So, Isaiah isn't going to just show us idols for what they are, but he's also going to show the people of God, show us God for who he is. Okay, how faithful and strong he is, how he is the true God, the true Savior, so that they and we would turn wisely from having any other gods before him and trust him. So over and over and over again in Isaiah, if you've been with us especially, you know this is the repeated theme. Isaiah wants us to be wise to idolatry because it can be subtle. It can be deceptive. It can be blinding, right? So are you wise are you becoming wiser to the idols in your life? Do you want to be? Do you want to be wise in that sense? Like, have eyes to see these deceitful things? Do you believe you need to be? So that's the effect that, that these texts are, are intended to have, to open our eyes to see, oh, man, I didn't even realize how I bow down so often to false gods. We really need this precisely because we tend to be blind to it. Listen to a great uh, quote by Tim Keller from a book called Counterfeit Gods. This is one of the reasons why idolatry is so subtle and we can be blind to it. He writes, The very things upon which we build all our happiness can turn to dust in our hands precisely because we've built all our happiness on them. We think that idols are bad things, But that's almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. So you realize that that's true. It can be good things that we turn into God things. And so Precisely because they're good, we don't think they're dangerous, and we can be deceived and blinded. So Isaiah wants us to be wise to idols and the subtle, deceitful danger, but even more so, he wants us to see the real thing. He wants us to be wise to the glory of the living God, the true God and Savior. Um, So you'll see right off the bat here in verses 1 to 4, this sharp contrast. So let's dive right in. We're going to really unpack chapter 46. We're going to really quickly look at chapter 47 because um, I think we can summarize that chapter fairly well in a short space. So chapter 46, verses 1 to 4, sharp contrast, either carry or be carried. Okay? Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So just show of hands here, how many of you know who Bel and Nebo are? Okay, the Old Testament scholar. Okay, he wins the gold star. But actually, the point is, 
Exactly. Nobody knows who they are. We'll come back to that in just a minute. So Bel and Nebo were the patron deities of Babylon. They represented Babylonian ideals. So you can actually hear their names in Belshazzar, Bel, and Nebuchadnezzar, okay, Nebo, two Babylonian kings. So Bel was the king of the gods. He was the chief god. He's the big kahuna. Okay, Nebo was his son. He was the patron god of wisdom and destinies. So he was supposed to write in these tablets of destiny, okay, so, little little summary from Barry Webb, an Old Testament scholar. This, this will be helpful for us. Every year at the New Year Festival, Nebo was brought from his own temple southwest of Babylon and carried in procession with his father, Bel, through the streets to the great shrine. I don't know the name of it. Okay. It was the greatest religious event of the year, the center around which their whole pagan environment revolved, an impressive celebration year by year of the power of Babylon and its gods, But in Isaiah's inspired vision, this festival is grotesquely transformed. Bel and Nebo bow and stoop. They're too heavy, and the exhausted animals that bear them stagger and fall. And instead of processing to that shrine, they stumble away into captivity. Okay, so here's the patron deities, the benefactors of Babylon. They were responsible for the city. The protection of the city was their burden. And instead, they were the burden that needed to be born out of the city. They haven't protected the city. They need to be evacuated from it. Okay, so imagine the picture here. Imagine the ropes tipping over this huge idol rolling it onto a cart, all the sweats and the grunts and the effort of the people that worship these gods that are so strong. So how can a god work for you when it requires so much work from you? How can a god help you when it proves to be so helpless? So I asked just a minute ago, how many of you know who Bel and Nebo are or were? And the whole point is nobody, and that's exactly the point. You know, why is it that if I start to talk about this historical background, you know, some of you just kind of like check out and start thinking about lunch, like, oh, here's another history lesson. They are old news, Bell and Nebo. They didn't last. But what if I start talking about your favorite sports teams or your favorite TV shows or your favorite tech gear or your favorite shopping establishments I might get your attention all of a sudden. But guess what? If somebody is preaching here a thousand years from now and they mention our tech gear and the stuff that we might tend to bow down to, they're going to go, what? iPhone? What's that? Apple? Like at least they're still growing on the trees, maybe. I don't know. The lesson is The gods du jour, you know, like soup du jour of the day, that's what they are, just that, of a day. God might be on the throne today, but tomorrow taken down and put on the shelf. So is it obvious to you what that might be in your life? So one of the things we learn from this passage is that idolatry, like idols, false gods, you have to work for them. You have to kind of prop them up. What is that in your life? 
If you have no idea, do you see why you need Isaiah? Because you need to see, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just, for them it was Bell and Nebo. What is it for us? We need to understand the dynamics there, and then we say, oh, hmm, let me think. Well, obvious example, you know, there's those guys. It's real easy to look out there and see some examples. We go, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so maybe there's that dude that has a car or a bike or a boat that's his baby. And man, he works on that thing. It's so easy to see how he serves it and props it up and makes sure it's nice and shiny and so that it can serve him. Okay, well, it's not wrong to have a boat, but a boat can be an idol, right? Or a bike or a car or whatever. A lot of work. You cart it around. You... Why are you doing that? Why are you carting that thing around? Well, so that it can save you from boredom, from having to deal with people. Get out in that boat. It's like an escape. Or to maybe help you impress other people. So maybe that's an easy example. Do you see it out there? But maybe you don't have a boat or a bike or, you know, you could give a rip about your car. Well, children can be an idol. See, a good thing. We can turn into a God thing. I mean, parents certainly have to work hard for their children. That's a normal, good thing. But some parents work so hard because they've wrapped their ultimate meaning and identity in their children. If they're a success, then I'll be a success. And unfortunately, conversely, if they fail, I am a failure. Or what about the approval and acceptance of other people? That can be an idol, right? It can dictate your life in such large measure. You work so hard in order to be saved from being rejected and being on the outside. You prop up your idol so that it will serve you. You're in. Now I, now I know who I am. Now I really can live. Or success. How many people are willing to serve that God? You, you know, they'll even be willing to compromise a little bit their integrity, and route. You know, a little slavery to the God of success, and that slavery is going to give me more power, right? And I'm going to, I'm going to finally know who I am. I'm going to finally be somebody. So you serve your God in order that it would serve you. And you know what? It might work for a time. Bell and Nebo, whoo, look at how powerful Babylon is. Might work for a while. But eventually, they got carted off into captivity. They were nothing. And they were shown to be what they were. It never works in the long run. So we can do this with health and beauty. Aphrodite's still alive and kicking. Right? Women bow down to Aphrodite. And when so much is wrapped up there, this goddess of beauty can turn to be such a wicked master. Eating disorders, jealousy and insecurity, especially of those women who don't have to work nearly as hard as I do condemnation and depression from not living up to Aphrodite's standards, or aging, you rage against aging because it steals your confidence and identity. You see how you serve this God, work for her that she might serve you. Men can do it too, bowing down to Aphrodite, goddess of beauty, Serving sex, lust, whatever that is, porn, in order that she would serve you. 
and we think it's going to fulfill our hearts. Instead, it breaks our hearts. It kills our marriages. Food can be the same thing. It's another good thing, right? And you know what? Oftentimes, different areas of life where we feel like we haven't, we, we haven't gotten the pleasure and comfort that we, we want, we're frustrated as we pursued other things, well, at least food you can kind of control and get some pleasure and comfort from it, right? I mean, all you got to do is go to read the right magazine or website, get the right recipe, go to the right grocery store, spend the time in the kitchen, and the food will serve you. Again, food's a good thing, but it can become an idol, and you run to it for comfort, and this good thing becomes a God thing, and it will quickly rule you. You served it in order that it would serve you, but now, now it's ruling you, and it's a bad master. So, do you see how the Lord wants to get our attention? He wants us to be wise to the danger of idolatry. Look at how he speaks to us in verse 3. Listen to me. He lovingly wants to get our attention away from those false gods. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb. What was the beginning of the nation? Out of Egypt, right? They were born on eagle's wings. He carried them out. He redeemed them. He rescued them. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and will save. All the other gods, they've got to be carried. You have to work for them, for them to work for you. All the other gods, you have to work for them, for them to work for you. Idols weigh you down. They can't save. So you are either the main worker in your religion, or God is. Those are the options. I love Isaiah 64, 4, so clear. Lord willing, we'll get to it. No eye has seen, no ear has heard a God besides you who works for those who wait for him. So I was having this conversation with a guy. Um, I met him in the coffee shop, and he's going through a really tough time, and, and um, his life is kind of falling apart, and I'm listening and, you know, trying to be, um, understand what was going on, also trying to give him some hope and share the gospel with him. And where he went is where, it's just the natural default position of the human heart. I've been such a good person. What did I do to deserve this? Basically, he even said, I even saved someone's life one time. I've helped people. I don't deserve this. I've worked so hard. God owes me, at least the God of my own making in my own mind. So your life is either built on works or on grace. There's only two kinds of religion in the world. Um, Writer Philip Yancey tells this story about C.S. Lewis. Maybe some of you have heard about this before. Um, So during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation, other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Resurrection, again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and he said, what's the rumpus about? That's a good good word, rumpus. Um, He asked and heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. 
And after some discussion, the compris had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, and the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. So carry or be carried. That's your choice. Listen to uh, Spurgeon speak of this passage. This is really sweet. He says, Many a gray-haired saint has made a soft pillow of this precious promise and has rested upon it with delight in the days of his decay. But yet the text, if it is read rightly, is a promise to the people of God at any and every period between their birth and their death. While the Lord does say that he will carry us to gray hairs, yet he begins by telling us that he carried us from the womb and that he will carry us still. In the course of years, not only do we change, but our circumstances change. Many look forward to trying circumstances in the declining days of life. When I cannot earn my livelihood, when I cannot go out to the farm or stand at the counter or work on the bench, what will become of me then? Listen, my brother. If you are where you ought to be, your confidence is in God now and you will have the same God then. And he will still be your guardian and provider. He will be under no decay from age nor decline from weakness. His bank will not break, nor his treasury fail. His granary will not be exhausted, and his bounty will not be worn out. Of this I am convinced God will not begin to make and carry us and then leave the work unfinished. It shall never be said of him that he began to build and was not able to finish. God will not redeem us with the blood of his son and then lose us. He will not suffer Calvary to become a mistake and the cross to be frustrated in its divine purpose. God will not prepare us for heaven and prepare heaven for us and not bring us there. He will not store up the blessings of the covenant and then refuse to bestow them or cast off those for whom they were provided. He who has begun a good work in us will carry it on and perfect it until the day of Christ. The past guarantees the future since we have to do with a God who can never change. So maybe especially for those of you that are in middle life and later, how many of you are afraid of what might come. How many of you are afraid of dementia setting on? Or Alzheimer's? Or Parkinson's? How many of you fear going into a nursing home and being a burden on others? How many of you fear wasting away out of the way? I mean, so many things can go wrong. We can... Some of you might be living like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. I mean, all of life can change in a day. Well, I don't know how any of you are going to spend your last days on earth or how I'm going to spend mine, but I do know that Isaiah 46, 3-4 holds true no matter where and how you do. Listen to me, God speaking to you, all who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. That's really good news. 
So the text goes on to drive home this contrast between the idols and the true and living God. And the point is that there is no comparison whatsoever. Look at verses 5 to 11 there. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Okay, we should get this here in the West. Us Americans, we are like incurable comparison shoppers. We're really good at this, right? Endless options means you better be good at comparison shopping. Well, why don't you do some here? (laughs) We need to do some. Let's go ahead and compare God with all the competition. I think we need to do this regularly. I mean, whenever we're inclined to wander off, what we need to do is say, time out. (laughs) Okay, let's do some comparison shopping here. Let's do a cost-benefit analysis here. This is insane. Why am, I, why am I going that way? And you remember who God is. So, and you also see the folly of, of idolatry, the competition. Look at verse 6. Let's go ahead and find God, his closest competitor. Well, here's one. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god, and then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him. It does not save him from his trouble. So why do we run to idols except that we believe in the moment that they can lighten our burdens, right? It's lies. It's propaganda. (laughs) We need to stop and do some comparison shopping. Like, what idols do you tend to fall for? And then size it up against God. If you need some help on what God is like, read Isaiah. Here you go, verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. So, yeah, he's calling us what we are, but he's doing it in order to give us grace, to give us himself, that we might turn away from the idols and run to him. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There's no other. I am God. There's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He is able. He's strong. He knows what he's doing. He holds the future. He he knows the end from the beginning. Totally sovereign over it all. You want him on your side. You want him for you. Calling a bird of prey from these, what's that all about? Well, that's Cyrus accomplishing his purpose. The man of my counsel from a far country I've spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I've purposed, and I will do it. So here's a real God who can really do things. False gods can't save. God says, I have, I can, I will. So the bottom line is, my people do not be deceived. Bel and Nebo and whatever the gods du jour that you might be tempted to bow down to, they can't serve or save you. No other so-called gods can serve you, except they can serve you in this, to see their helplessness. If as you're doing your comparison shopping, you go, oh, that really serves my faith right now, to see how worthless they are. to see how Bell and Ebel just stooping toppled over and let, letting that picture serve our faith in the true God, the true God who comes near to truly save. So look at point three, verses 12 and 13. I'm coming near to save. Listen to me. Again, listen. 
you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. I, I have to bring it to you. I, I will bring it to you. You are stubborn of heart. You are far from righteousness, so I'm going to bring my salvation to you. You don't work your way to me. I bring it to you. What clearer fulfillment of this is, is there than the, the incarnation and the cross of Jesus Christ? For us stubborn of heart people who were far from righteousness, he came near, he brought salvation so that Jesus could say to us, stubborn rebels, come to me. We're so weary from carrying our, our gods around. And he came near so that he could say to us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'm a real God. I'm a real Savior. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm humble and gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So you can have the salvation of God through Christ, or if you refuse grace, if you refuse the true God and choose to serve idols, then one day you will fall with your idols when the Lord takes vengeance on his enemies. We have to just look at this. Eyes open. This is chapter 47. I will take vengeance. I either come near to save or it will be to take vengeance. And that's chapter 47. Do you see it there? I will take vengeance. And actually in Hebrew, it's front-loaded for emphasis. Vengeance I will take and I will spare no one. That's what chapter 47 is all about. It's the result of building your life on the sand of pride and human achievement and self-sufficiency. Babylon is personified as this great woman that will be shamed and brought low. So, kind of bottom lining verse, uh, chapter 47, look at verse 11. She thought she was so secure, but look at what God is saying to her. This is chilling, this description in verse 11. Evil shall come upon you which you will not know how to charm away. So they took pride in their ability to, you know, astrology and sorcery and whatnot. They thought they were so smart. And so God is saying, you're not going to be able to charm this away. Disaster will fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone. You can't atone for your own sins. And ruin shall come upon you of which you know nothing. You're not going to see this one coming. Like a thief in the night. And then bottom line, at the end of verse 15, do you see it? There's no one to save you. Could even be translated, your Savior does not exist. So their false sense of security was shaken. You know, she said things like, I will never be left desolate, never be helpless or unproductive. I'll never lose. And that pride was brought low and became shame. The power became impotence. Their seductive power, you know, everybody wanted to be saddled up next to Babylon on her good side, benefiting from her Their seductive power became impotence and disgrace. Do you see how Revelation 18, Babylon historically becomes shorthand. It becomes a symbol for this fallen world. 
So her fertility became barrenness. Her wisdom couldn't save her. All her lovers and clients and followers, none can save her. The point is, here's this historical reality, but in the Bible, you know, like I said, Babylon becomes a symbol. It's like the city of man, the city of destruction. And so Revelation 18 that Tyler read is so appropriate because that's what it will look like at the end. Um, Ray Ortland summarizes it well like this. He says, we feel the tremors of the final shaking of all things, Revelation 18, even now in the many judgments of history, the fall of historical Babylon, such as the fall of ancient, <laughs> there it is, um, ancient Babylon and every other social collapse along the way. In the upheavals of history, we're hearing whispers of the final shout of triumph, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The judgment of God is not theoretical. It is before our eyes. The final reckoning will be as real as the history you and I are experiencing right now, and God will spare no one. Babylon is doomed. So don't love the world or the things in the world. It's all passing away. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. So in which city is your citizenship, Babylon or New Jerusalem? Who has your heart? Do you love this world or do you love, love God? So as we, as we draw this study um, on these chapters to a close and prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper, um, let's be sure that we're not finally focusing on idolatry, even to understand it, as important as that is, but let's be sure to focus on the burden-bearing grace of our God. So how many of you are familiar, hopefully more than Bell and Nebo, how, how many of you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? Okay, that's great. Um, so he's this English writer, pastor, who lived in the 1600s. And actually, The Pilgrim's Progress is the second best-selling Christian book of all time. Did you know that? Second only to the Bible. So it's an allegorical story of the Christian life. And the main character named Christian flees the city of destruction and, you know, after hearing the gospel from a guy named Evangelist. So he begins his journey with this great burden on his back, right? The burden of his guilt and his sins. And then comes this point in the book. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on each side with a wall. The wall was called salvation. Therefore it was up this highway that Christian ran, but not without great difficulty because of the burden of the load on his back. He ran till he came to a small hill at the top of which stood a cross, and at the bottom of which was a tomb. I saw in my dream that when Christian walked up the hill to the cross, his burden came loose from his shoulders and fell off his back, tumbling down the hill until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in to be seen no more. Then Christian was relieved and delighted and exclaimed with a joyful heart, He has given me rest by, by his sorrow and life by his death. For a while, he stood still in front of the cross to look and wonder. It was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should ease him of his burden. He continued looking at the cross until tears began streaming down his cheeks. As he stood looking and weeping, three shining ones came to him and greeted him with, Peace be with you. Then the first said to him, Your sins are forgiven. The second stripped him of his rags and dressed him with new clothing. The third put a mark on his forehead and gave him a scroll with a seal on it. He told Christian to review it often as he went on his way, 
and at the end of his journey to turn it in at the celestial gate. After this, they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on his way singing. So if what happened to Christian has happened to you by God's grace, if you've known the burden of your sin weighing you down and you've come to Christ at the cross and your burden has been rolled away from you, then you are welcome to participate in this meal. If Jesus isn't yet your Savior and Lord, we're glad that you're here. Consider some of these passages. Consider Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. You know, come to me, all you're weary and heavy laden. But just let the elements pass. You don't have to be ashamed to do that. But again, for us as we approach the table here on the cross, here's the thing. Jesus bore the greatest burden. The burden of our sin in our place. Isaiah 53, a few chapters ahead. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him. Like a burden was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we no longer have to shoulder the burden of our sin. Instead, we have been shouldered by the Good Shepherd who bore our burden on the cross to set us free. So as you eat and drink in a few moments, remember the parable that Jesus gave us in Luke 15. Remember when he said, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one, doesn't leave the 99 and go after the one that's lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. That's the picture of your Savior, Good Shepherd. You don't work for him. You don't have to prop him up. You don't have to carry him around. He carries you. And he does it joyfully. We are on the shoulders of our shepherd. He came to seek and save the lost, and he's glad that he's found you. So he did that so that Isaiah 46, 3 and 4 could be ours. This promise. Stick your name in there. Listen to me. What's your name? You who have been born by me from birth, I'm going to carry you all the way home. Trust me. All the way to gray hairs, all the way to the grave and beyond. I have carried you. I will carry you. No matter what the burden is that you came in here with this morning, no matter what's weighing you down, listen to the Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord. So this table is an opportunity to do that this morning. He will sustain you. Don't run anywhere else. And you know what? If, you've come in, if you're a Christian, you've come in here way down precisely because you haven't been looking to him to carry you. You've been wandering off to other competition, other gods. You've been looking to them for relief. Then come back to Jesus and lay that burden down here at the cross. I mean, idols are attractive to us precisely because they promise to lighten the burden. Some reason we think that to trust and follow God is a burden. 
oftentimes. That's the, the lie that Satan wants to sell us. It's the oldest one in the book. But here, <laughs> let this table be a, a tangible reminder that you're dealing with the burden bearer. He wants to take that burden from you to give you freedom and lightness of heart so that just like Christian, you can jump for joy three times and go on your way singing out of here this morning. So as we come to the table, let Jesus' words ring in your ears that he died to make yours come to me. All who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is life. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that you bore the burden in our place on the cross so that we could roll that burden off onto you and you could bury it forever, forgiving our sins and taking them away as far as the east is from the west. So please, would you feed us on that grace this morning? Remind us of who you are. Show us the thinness of all the, the false gods and competition so that we, we just leave it all behind and we cling to you. In Jesus' name, amen.